Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Sarah. And I'm Ben. And surprise! Surprise! It's a Halloween miracle! Happy Halloween, everyone. Two Scream Scene episodes on the same day. That's our... Guarantee. (laughs) No, it's not. Not at all. (laughs) That's our treat from us to you the listeners. Yeah, we just had a trick of... Horror Island. Of Horror Island not being a horror movie, and now here's a treat of the man-made monster! Yeah, we were kind of a little bit bummed out that our Halloween episode movie called Horror Island turned out to not not be be horror. horror. So we've decided to just... Keep on going and cover the second half of that double feature. Which I'm actually pretty stoked about. Yeah. Yeah, because it is the first appearance of Lon Chaney Jr. on the show. In looking into Man Made Monster from Universal Pictures, the more research I did about it, the more I think we probably should have started with this one. Okay. We, we, we should have started with this one and also just not done the other one. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Exactly. Um, you know, looking at these two films from a distance, uh, they both came out on the same day. They were released as co-features in a double feature. And Horror Island had the higher budget. So it sort of seems like it's the A picture of the two. But doing the research now for Man Made Monster, it's pretty clear it was the main feature. And Horror Island was the B picture. Interesting. Um, So we kind of watched them in the order that you would see them in a theater, because B pictures played before the A picture. Uh, For more information, see our... Previous episode. From earlier today. (laughs) Episode 83, if you want a specific number. So the other thing about Man-Made Monster is it has a much longer history than Horror Island. It started as a script in 1935. Oh. It was called, originally, The Electric Man... And it was intended to star Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. Right, because, like, mid-30s, that's when we were getting things like The Raven. Yes. And, like, where both of them were in. Yes. Yeah. However, uh, Carl Lemley Jr. considered the script to be too close to the story for The Invisible Ray (laughs) and ordered it to be rewritten to be more distinctive. Sure. But then the Lemleys lost control of the studio to Standard Capital Corporation, and the script was just shelved. As it gathered dust, mm-hmm. um, horror drastically changed. Yes. It went away, and now it's come back. This will be very interesting. Yeah. As horror, you know, has been coming back in the early 40s, what we've really seen is a change from horror being an A-picture genre into becoming a B-picture genre, right? That's the main shift we're seeing, is instead of, you know, the studios putting some effort into these movies, they're being just cranked out as program fillers. And having them be, like, a popular genre, and by that I mean, like, you know, people purposely marketing their movies as horror when they aren't. Right. So in the rush to compete 
with the burgeoning B-movie market for horror, the Universal Studio execs basically just dusted the script off uh, because, you know, hey, this will save us some time. We have one of these just lying around. And that's when they gave it to George Wagner, who we talked about a lot in our Horror Island episode. Uh, they gave it to him to rewrite. And he did, uh, under the pen name of Joseph West. So Man-Made Monster is directed by George Wagner, written by Joseph West, and those are the same guy. Okay. It was intended to be a quick, low-budget picture. Uh, it was to be shot in three weeks with a budget of $86,000. Here's $5 <laughs> and a camcorder. There you go. Yep. It was the cheapest feature film made by Universal for the 1941 release calendar. Wow. Like, uh, like... For the whole year. So not just horror, just like all genres. Yeah, the cheapest movie they made that year. Is that just because they already had the script? Possibly. Um, I'll remind you that Horror Island, the other half of the double bill, had a budget of $93,000. Right. So yeah, these are they're making these in the budget range of your Poverty Row studios. Mm-hmm. The Lugosi role was recast with horror stalwart Lionel Atwill. Nice. Uh, we last saw him in Son of Frankenstein. Who was he in the that? The inspector. Right, right. The um, robotic arm guy. Yes. Yeah. He was so good. So since then, he's appeared in 13 films, uh, including as Rochefort in 20th Century Fox's musical comedy version of The Three Musketeers, uh, as Dr. James Mortimer in Fox's version of Hound of the Baskervilles with Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce, as well as appearances in the Mr. Moto, Charlie Chan, and Dr. Kildare series. Okay. So he's been pretty busy in, like, since 1939. Yeah, 13 films in that time. Yeah. And in the role originally meant for Boris Karloff, they cast a 35-year-old actor who they billed as Lon Chaney Jr., he was born Creighton Cheney in Oklahoma City in 1906, the son of Lon Cheney and his first wife, Cleva Creighton, who were traveling vaudeville performers at the time. Oh, wait, so his first name was his mother's maiden name? Correct. That's cool. So his mother attempted suicide. Oh. Um, and soon after the suicide attempt... Uh, the couple divorced uh, in 1913 when Creighton would have been seven years old. Creighton was sent away to live with his deaf grandparents until 1916 when his father married his second wife, Hazel Hastings, and could then provide a stable home. Creighton didn't want to live in his father's shadow, uh, and indeed his father discouraged him from entering show business. So, he attended college, and after graduation, he worked for an appliance and plumbing company in Los Angeles. Okay. In 1928, he married Dorothy Hinckley, the daughter of his boss, Ralph Hinckley, and they had two children, Lon Ralph Cheney and Ronald Creighton Cheney. In 1930, his father died of throat cancer, and it was only then that Creighton learned that his mother was still alive. 
when his parents divorced, he had been told that his mother had died instead of being told that his parents had divorced. Oh my god. He began acting uh, soon after, in 1931, in small bit parts at first, uh, as well as taking stunt work roles for RKO, uh, and slowly moved on to larger parts, uh, mostly in movie serials. His first starring roles in feature films were at Poverty Row Studios like Monogram, starting in 1934. It was in 1935 that he began to be credited as Lon Chaney Jr., uh, a marketing move to create an association in audience minds with his more famous father. He never legally changed his name. Mm -hmm. He started being cast as heavies and as villains in serials for Republic pictures. In 1937, he signed with 20th Century Fox and appeared in over 30 films in the next two years. Dang. It was around this time that his heavy drinking started to truly develop into an alcohol problem, and his wife divorced him due to his drinking, which caused him to be abusive, as well as what she called sullen in personality. He remarried soon after to Patsy Beck, a marriage that was also fraught with difficulties. Mm -hmm. His big break as an actor came in the 1939 adaptation of Of Mice and Men, playing the mentally challenged Lenny Smalls, opposite newcomer Burgess Meredith as George. The film was highly praised and was nominated uh, for a Best Picture Oscar. Cheney then tried to get the part of Quasimodo in the 1939 remake of Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, but the part went to Charles Lawton. His next appearance was as a Neanderthal in One Million B.C., which came out in 1940, uh, for which Cheney designed his own makeup in an attempt to emulate his father. However, union rules regarding makeup departments... Uh, that had developed by this time, prevented him from actually executing this. You couldn't be like his dad anymore and do your own makeup as an actor. Mm -hmm. Universal Pictures then offered Chaney another way to take after his father, by coming to do horror movies for them. Uh, and so he found himself with the lead role in Man-Made Monster. I guess the part of this story of his that I don't quite get is... You know, you started off with saying he doesn't want to be like his dad. And then after his dad dies, he finds out his mom is alive. And so it's kind of like, fuck you, dad. I'm going to do show business. Like, I don't get why he suddenly, like, changed careers and, like, went into show business. Yeah, it's hard to say because he he clearly had a lot of mixed feelings about it. Yeah. His dad didn't want him acting. We know that. And he didn't really want to act either. Uh, he didn't want to be Lon Chaney Jr. He wanted to be Creighton Chaney. So it seems like probably what was really going on was he was, you know, the people who were pushing him to act were usually the studios because they wanted to be able to market Lon Chaney Jr. That was what was valuable was that name, especially because his dad had died so suddenly, like his career was really cut off Early. We discussed that in a lot of our earlier episodes in the series, you know, how he was supposed to be Dracula and then could not be Dracula because he had passed away. And I think with Lon Chaney Jr., it was a case of 
probably just the fact that, like, with his wife and his two kids, you know, who knows how successful he was in the plumbing business. Mm-hmm. And there was probably just the idea that there was maybe better money in just saying okay to the movie studios and agreeing to become an actor. And, I mean, we can see it took him a long time. I mean, he starts acting in 1931, and it's not till 1939 that he really gets, like, a good role, like a good part that actually is in a movie that does well, that gets him critical acclaim. So you can see that, like, I don't think he was naturally suited for it. It took him, you know, a long time to do a lot of bit roles and get the experience to just get good at it, right? It was it was like a job, right? Yeah. Where you're just grinding until you get better at it, uh, rather than like a passion or a calling. And then you have the studio starting to credit him under his dad's name, and he starts to get a little bit of critical attention. You know, like, his first wife leaves him in 37, and, you know, he marries again, and it's only after that that he gets his first big success. And I think what might have happened then, and, you know, this is all speculation, right? Like, totally. he's been dead for years. We can't ask him. But I think what might have happened then is, you know, he's starting to get success, and it's like, oh, okay, maybe I can do this. Like, maybe, maybe like, I am destined to follow in my father's footsteps. Like, maybe I'm supposed to do this. Okay. And, the, and that's why we see him leaning more into, like, to the point of recreating the role, mm-hmm. or, or attempting to, auditioning to, with Quasimodo. Yeah, let's go in and lean into this, right? And go be Quasimodo. And then he doesn't get that. And it's like, okay, well, let's start doing the makeup thing. And he's not allowed to do that, right? Like, you know, it, it's almost like he was, he, he didn't want to emulate his dad, and he wasn't allowed to emulate his dad. And then he was kind of forced into doing it. And then once he finally made peace with doing it, he wasn't allowed to or able to or he was shut down from it, right? So I think, you know, that informs certainly, you know, his drinking and his alcoholism, just the fact that, like, his was a life of mixed signals, right? And then you have Universal over here saying, hey, like, like this guy was in Of Mice and Men, right? Like a Best Picture nominee, you know, mm-hmm. big drama, gets a lot of critical acclaim for it, and... Then you have Universal saying, like, hey, come be in our cheapest movie of the year. Yeah. And he says yes, because being in a Universal horror movie is a way that he can emulate his dad when the other ways, like, you know, going and being in the big budget, prestige picture version of Hunchback, he can't do it. Doing the makeup thing, he can't do it, right? So it's like, okay, well, then I'll go and do this. And it's like, that probably wasn't the best move for him, because we know how Hollywood works. You start doing B-movies in a genre that doesn't have respect, that's what everyone's going to see you as, right? But that's where he ends up, because it's what's offered to him. Yeah. Yeah, I have, um, honestly, to try to put a name to this feeling, it's a little bit of pity for, like, yeah, how he's he's treated by the system and what he goes through. And it's probably why Wolfman, I know we're not on Wolfman, so I won't talk about it, but like, he's so good at Wolfman. Yeah. Because that he is Lawrence Talbot. At the end of the day, like when you look at all the movies that Lon Chaney ever did, Lon Chaney Jr. I should say, um, he was good at two types of characters, lunkheads and sad sacks. 
and Lunch like heads and sad sacks. And that's kind of what he was really, right? He was good when he was playing himself, himself, or or reflections of himself. And he's really out of his depth any other time. But I mean, listen, this is the first time we're seeing him. It's not gonna be the last. We're gonna be seeing a lot more of Lon Chaney Jr. So, um. So there's to refocus this conversation, is what you mean? Yeah, there's gonna be a lot more to his story, and we're gonna be able to talk more about how his story develops as he continues to appear on the show. Fair enough. So, after shooting was completed on Man Made Monster, uh, the Universal execs were very impressed with what they saw. Uh, so they offered both George Wagner and Lon Chaney Jr. long-term contracts at the studio and decided to commission Horror Island to back Man-Made Monster as the other half of a double feature. So oh. when they made Man-Made Monster, the intent was, this is going to be a B movie. And then they saw it and they were like, oh, maybe we can make this the A movie. Let's make another B movie to put together with this. And because they had shot Man-Made Monster in late December, early January, with the intent of releasing in March. That's why suddenly Horror Island had to be shot in, like, two weeks, starting in March to be out in late March, right? And the whole reason George Wagner is director of it is yes. because of this movie. Yes. Yeah. This is why I said we, we should have done this one first. I just didn't know. No worry. Like, that, that's why research goes into this. They came out on the same day. It's yeah. fine. It's an honest, like, mix-up. For sure. Yeah, there's there's not a lot of difference chronologically, you know, in terms of the development of the genre that we're watching one oh, before the other. definitely not, because Horror Island isn't horror. Exactly. <laughs> so, yes, it was released alongside Horror Island on March 28th, 1941, and the double feature was a minor box office mm-hmm. success, uh, and you better believe that Universal's PR department heavily played up the idea of Cheney following in his father's footsteps in promoting the movie. So, that would be the end of this movie's story. It's only significance the introduction of Cheney Jr. into the Universal Pictures roster of stars, if not for one thing. Okay. We're going to talk probably about this more when we get here in the timeline, but in the 1950s, Uh, A series of laws passed by the United States government uh, made it more difficult for older studios to make money re-releasing their old movies. So what they started to do was rent or lease their old movies to companies that existed solely for the purpose of re-releasing them. Um, Basically, this was all about anti-monopoly, antitrust kind of stuff. So in the 1950s, this company started to exist called Real Art Pictures, which basically just specialized in re-releasing old Universal movies. (laughs) And they re-released Man-Made Monster under the title The Atomic Monster, uh, which was a retitling done solely to cash in on 1950s trends. Totally. However, writer Alex Gordon had submitted a spec script to real art under that title. Now, a spec script is a script that you write that you haven't been hired to write. You wrote it of your own accord, and now you're shopping it around trying to sell it to people. And clearly, Gordon just didn't realize that, like, real art doesn't make new movies. They just re-release old movies. He was probably just mailing this out to anyone. But his script was called The Atomic Monster, and here was real art with a different movie with the same title. So he sent his attorney 
Samuel Arkoff to meet with RealArt's sales manager, James Nicholson. RealArt agreed to settle for $1,000, but more significantly, Gordon, Arkoff, and Nicholson came away from their meeting deciding to form their own movie company, <laughs> which they called American International Pictures, or AIP, which would go on to be the company behind Roger Corman and numerous other genre filmmakers in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So we're going to be talking a lot about AIP when we get to those decades. That's a really cool fun fact. Yeah. Yeah, that's like a trivial pursuit question. For sure. Yeah. So how are we watching this movie? Well, like its partner, Horror Island, Man Made Monster is available on DVD as part of the Universal Horror Classic Movie Archive. Okay. Well, folks, um, find a way to get that DVD and you can watch along with us. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude and when we come back we will discuss Man Made Monster from 1941, directed by George Wagner. We hope you're having a lovely Halloween evening. No, don't have a lovely Halloween evening. We hope you're having a spooky, scary, terrifying Halloween evening. Spooky, scary. Werewolf for mitzvah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching our second movie for Halloween 2018. It's Man-Made Monster from 1941, starring Lon Chaney Jr. and directed by George Wagner. Sarah, what did you think? Yeah, it was, it was a horror movie. Yes. So, just just barely. Just, yeah, well, like, I feel like just by the hair on its chinny-chin-chin, you know? <laughs> But yes. Yeah, I mean, I think if we had just watched Man-Made Monster, just like, you know, putting it on whatever, it'd be like, was this a horror movie? I think it was, but was it? But having just seen Horror Island, which is definitely not a horror movie, I can say that this is definitely a horror movie. It's just not a very good one. Yeah, I mean, I have some thoughts on what's kind of going on here. It's just a very generic one. It's, it's not, yeah, it's not doing anything. It's, the problem isn't so much that it's not good. Mm -hmm. The problem is that, like, the percentage of time where exciting good horror things are happening versus not <laughs> is very low. Like, yeah. what is in here is good. It's just, like, a, a small percentage. It's like, you know how, like, there are some brands of chocolate chip cookie where, like, you know, like, like those, like, President's Choice chocolate chip cookies where you get them and it's just, like, chock-a-block full of chocolate. And then there's, like, those other chocolate chip cookie brands, like a Dad's, where it's, like, there's two chips in, like, the whole cookie. And, <laughs> and they're, you're, like, like, so tiny. Yeah, and you're, like, what boring person is this for? A that, Dad. Yeah, okay. That's how they're called Dad's cookies. So that's kind of what this is. This is the Dad's cookie of horror movies because it's, like, it's, like, oh, there's just a little bit. There's just a little bit. So what's the movie about, Sarah? <laughs> Dan McCormick, 
who is Lon Chaney Jr., has just survived a bus accident where um, the bus careens off the road into electrical wiring and the people on the bus, including the driver, are all electrocuted, except for Dan McCormick. And the boy who lived. <laughs> and electrobiologist Dr. John Lawrence wants to find out why and how. It turns out Dan is immune to electricity thanks to his sideshow act as Dynamo Dan, the electric man. <laughs> Um, Now, uh, so Dr. John Lawrence has this um, science research lab practice um, where he does research. His niece, June Lawrence, is like their secretary assistant, and he has a colleague also here named Dr. Paul Regis. Regis. Like uh, Regis Philbin. Correct, yes. Dr. Paul Regis played by Lionel Atwell. Regis and Lawrence do disagree on some scientific theories, mainly with Dr. Regis's theory of um, the ability to create electrical supermen ruled by superior intellect by getting them immune and addicted to electricity. And it's by this addiction to electricity that A, they get super strength, and B, they become ruled by this superior intellect. Now, when... (laughs) This is great. Uh, So when Dr. Lawrence invites Dan to come to his institute so he can, like, figure out, you know, why exactly do you have this immunity, this gives Regis the perfect opportunity to prove these theories. Can I say what my favorite thing is about Dr. Regis? That's Lionel Atwell. Well, yes, but I'll I'll get to that, like, later in the discussion. But, like, Dr. Regis is our mad scientist for the evening. And, like every mad scientist, there's that moment where he explains his theory and someone says, You're mad. And every other mad scientist I've ever seen says, like, You think I'm mad? You fool! I'll prove you wrong! Or something like that. And Lionel Atwell, bless his heart, he gets to say the line, Of course I'm mad! And, like, just is, <laughs> totally admits it. But his, like, position is that, like, all great scientists are mad. So, like... Yeah, he's like, so was Galileo. Yeah, and it's just, like, no! No! Was no! No, he wasn't! <sighs> um, anyways, so June notices Dan is becoming quite sullen and melancholic as his dependence on... Regis's experiments, which he's doing in secret, and his dependence on electricity grows. Just as Regis fills Dan with the maximum electricity he's able to, I guess, he proves his theories as Dan becomes fully electrified uh, and glowing on the screen, shooting out electrical bolts like he's Storm up in here. Um, just as he's able to prove, like, yes, he's now super strong, I can control him, all of this, Dr. Lawrence comes in and he's like, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> sure, you proved your theories, but, like, Dan's dead now. Because he, he's explicitly called a shell of a man. Well, the idea is supposed to be that, like, he's filled with electricity, but, like, the electricity isn't really being, like, stored in him in any way. 
because he's still like a human. So it's constantly like running out of his body into whatever he touches. And once it's gone, he'll be dead. So like Lionel Atwell puts him in like a rubber suit. So the rubber will like insulate him. So the electricity won't just all run out. So Lawrence is going to call the police because Regis has killed Dan. And Regis is like, Dan, stop him. And Dan, under this control, kills Lawrence off screen-ish. You know, just off off frame. And just as like Regis is like, remember, you killed him. I had nothing to do. <laughs> you killed him. You have to say to everyone, you killed him. June and her fiancé Mark come in and they're like, what the fuck? So we go through, you know, the trial process and everything, and despite June's protests about Dan not being himself, Dan is found sane by the court, as well as guilty in first-degree murder, and he is sentenced to death by electric chair. You know how, like, Dan McCormick is, like, famous uh, worldwide, assumedly, for being immune to electricity? It's the night of the execution, and with the electricity that he gets in the chair, he breaks out of jail and heads back to the Institute to confront Regis. June is there, and she's snooping around, and Regis catches her, and that's when he gets to explain, like, yes, I am mad, like Galileo and such and such, and what's his nuts and all of those other scientists. Dan comes in. And he is, like, approaching Regis. Regis is backing away because Dan's doing kind of the, like, slow monster walk. And Regis just, like, closes a door between them, which is just the funniest thing that's like, ah, I'll escape this monster by just closing the door. But as Dan grabs the doorknob, Regis gets electrocuted through the doorknob. June's like, there's too much going on. I must faint because I'm a lady. Um, and for... Reasons? For tropes. Um, Dan picks up... For the gram. (laughs) Dan picks up June's fainted body, who is also unexplainably in a long white dress. June, that is. For for the gram. Yeah. Um, and so she gets, you know, taken out, whatever. Dan, uh, is followed by police to a barbed wire fence where, you know, he lets go of June. He ends up getting trapped in this barbed wire fence. The metal from the barbed wire basically leaks out enough electricity from Dan that he dies. Yeah, it cuts through his rubber suit and then, like, serves as the wire to conduct all the electricity away from him. Yeah, and in a little epilogue at the end of the film, June and her fiancé Mark have Dr. Regis's notes, and they decide to burn them so the inhumane experiments can never be repeated. Even though, like, without the notes, there's no evidence that, like, Regis was, like, a horrible person and Dan was actually not responsible, so they choose to, you know, prevent future people from doing evil rather than, like, clear Dan's name. Yeah. All right. Yeah. The end. Basically, Lon Chaney gets to do three things in this movie. Like, he gets to be the sweet, charming, like, G-aw-shucks carnival guy that he is at the start then he gets to be the kind of sullen depressed guy who he is when he's like addicted to electricity electricity. and then basically he gets to be the monster um and because once he gets fully electrified he doesn't he's not like really a like sapient human being anymore he's just like straight up like boris karloff but he's like you know frankenstein style but he's he's glowing and has electrical powers 
Um, they do do, like, an interesting thing with his makeup where once he's, you know, filled with electricity or whatever, like, his body, as the electricity is leaving it slowly over time, his body's, like, deteriorating, so they have him, like, aging, basically, yeah, which he, is a cool look. He gets, like, white hair, he gets, um... Like, wrinkles. and In a lesser degree of, like, you know, the mummy mm-hmm. from the mummy. Yeah. Like, the 1930-whatever mummy, like, how he has, like fragile crinkly skin yeah that's what it kind of looks like but it's like a neat choice i can see why honestly the execs at universal decided to upgrade this to an a picture despite how cheaply we know this was made for um it never felt cheap while i was watching it like it felt just about the same as any other recent universal horror movie in some ways it feels like it feels, watching it, like it was pricier than Horror Island, um, even though we know that Horror Island had more spent on it. You know, the effects with him glowing and having electrical stuff are well done. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't look crappy. Probably the place where this movie, for me, betrays its low budget the most is that it's very padded. There's a lot of scenes of people standing around talking, and the story does a lot of telling instead of showing. Mm-hmm. A lot of, you know... reporters or newsmen or cops, you know, being like, ah, Dan's, like, broken out here, and he's gone over here, and he killed these five guys, rather than, like, seeing that happen. Yeah, I think the special effects were pretty well done. Um, The first time that Dan becomes glowing, he's, like, walking around the lab, and at one point, like, there's, like, this, like, this science thing that's, like, between Dan and the camera. The beaker. It's a glass beaker. Um, well, no, it's a, like, it's not transparent. Oh, because there was a transparent thing that he walked past. Yeah, he walked past that, and he walked past something that completely blocks him from view. And the way that, um, I guess the animation for the special effects was done, um, gets occluded by it very well. Like, I don't know, they did a very good job. Because it's supposed to look like he's glowing, so they actually give it some good lighting effects where, you know, it's not just... Like, what Sarah's trying to say is, like, it's not just solidly cut off by the things he walks in front of. It looks like the like light is kind of wrapping around things. Yeah, thanks for taking the jumbles and putting them into actual words. For sure. It's worth saying, um, I, we're gonna... So, we've already fucked this up on this podcast in this episode. We will probably continue to fuck it up for the rest of this series. But just to say it... Special effects are things like Dan's makeup or the electrical equipment in the lab. Visual effects are things like the animation for him glowing. Oh, I'm sorry. There's a... No, 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 it's fine. Like, I I always mess that up and people always mess it up all the time. But that's... Traditionally, that's what the distinction between VFX and SFX are, is special effects are anything that was done in camera or on set or, you know, or required, like, real things, like um, King Kong is a special effect. Visual effects are things done solely in post-production, so, you know, stuff like animation effects and things like that. And we're going to fuck it up and say the wrong thing for the wrong thing for the rest of the show, because I always do. I just wanted to take a brief moment to, like, on the record say, like, I know there's this distinction, <laughs> but we're going to mess up. Mm-hmm. There were a couple moments where... I don't think an average moviegoer, an audience member, would recognize this, but they, they took shots of electrical equipment from Frankenstein mm-hmm. during parts of the climax here. We've 
A, we've seen Frankenstein many a time, but also B, like, we've studied it for this podcast, like, if anyone was going to notice, it was us. But, like, I don't think, they're not trying to hide it. They've got, on the actual set, like, one or two pieces of, like, you know, Strick Fadden-style electrical equipment for Lionel Atwell to play with, and then during the, like, experiment scenes where we're doing, like, rapid cuts between, like, Atwill and Cheney and electrical gizmos going off. They don't have enough electrical gizmos, so they just throw in some shots of some electrical gizmos from Frankenstein. It's because they're doing the same kind of shit. Yeah. What did you think of Anne Nagel? So she played June Lawrence. Um, when her name came up in the credits in the opening, I was like, ooh, that name is familiar. Like, who is that? We had last seen her in Black Friday as the gangster's girlfriend. And she she was in this. Um, I think she was pretty good, but I'm just kind of curious what you thought. I thought she was fine. Um, like, honestly, the standouts of the cast here are Lon Chaney and Lionel Atwill. But if you want to talk about Anne Nagel, like, she gets to have a little bit more of a backbone and a little bit more agency than women in universal horror usually get to have. You know, she's the one who's fighting for Dan's innocence when he's on trial you know, because Dan, during that whole section of the movie, all he can really do is keep repeating, I killed him. Because yeah. um, Regis tells him, like, hey, if anyone asks. Um, <laughs> so she's the one going to everyone and being like, but there's no way he could have done it. And she's also the one who, you know, discovers Regis's villainy. She still ends up damseled, but it's in that Lois Lane way where it's kind of her own fault. Yeah. Because um, she snuck, stuck her nose in where it shouldn't belong. Um, so she's fine. I don't think she's really like especially special, but not especially special. <laughs> yeah, but but she's fine. She's not like actively terrible. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean with like At Will and Cheney being the standouts. I think At Will is like completely hamming it up here, oh, absolutely. and it's the best. Yeah, he's like the best part of this movie. He's honestly, he's a lot of fun. He's He's clearly come to the conclusion that these kind of roles are best played when you just kind of, like, take a fuck-it attitude towards overacting. Yeah. Um, Cheney wasn't as good for really? me. Really? Really? I, I think part of the reason why is because I was disappointed that, like, we get to see him have some, like, emotion uh, to his acting and everything in the first bit, but then as soon as he starts, as soon as Dan gets, starts to get addicted to the electricity, he just immediately is just, like, almost zombie-like, you know? He doesn't get to actually do much, um, and then as soon as he's, like, the actual monster, he's just shuffling around, and, like, I guess I just felt a little disappointed about that. I think I feel the same way if Karloff was in this, because it's, like, you know, I want to see Karloff do more than just the same Frankenstein's monster thing. Um, so I, I, I think that's why I felt disappointed with Cheney's acting here. I, I disagree. First, I will say that, like, in general, as a broad statement, I don't think Lon Chaney Jr. is as good an actor as Boris Karloff or Bela Lugosi. But he is very good at the things that he does well. And I can totally see how this movie got Cheney the job at Universal. I can totally see why they went, cool, here's a contract. He's very effective in it, um, in my mind. Like, he doesn't get to do much, 
But he doesn't need to. Like, that's not what the movie's asking him for. Mm-hmm. And what he's asked to do in the movie, he does very, very well. The thing I noticed about him right away is that he's got some screen presence here that we haven't really seen from, like, a lead in a horror movie in a long time. That's true. Um, he really seems to have some some charisma. He's likable, and he's sweet early on, and that's exactly what he needs to be, and it's the main thing that makes his tragedy effective. The movie kind of needs him to be a lovable doofus, and then to be a tragic pawn, and he's able to deliver both of those very well. He's not doing much at the start of the movie, but he's so likable. Yes, his personality's taken away at the end of the movie, and he's just a zombie, but, like, that's the horror. Like, that's the point, right? Like, that's the the tragedy that's befallen him. And the reason you feel that and you give a shit is because he's very likable and charming at the start of the movie. And you really do feel sorry for him in a way that we haven't gotten in a movie in some time. Mm -hmm. Like, it really recalls the early monsters of the 1930s more because he has pathos, that's the main thing Cheney's bringing to this is pathos. And, you know, you talk about, like, he, he's kind of a zombie in the second half. But there's something about, like, his face and, like, the way he's able to be expressive with his face and, like, express how sad and confused and... Betrayed? But, yeah, and, like, tragic um, Dan McCormick is at the end. Even, you know, during the scenes where he's dying and the electricity's getting pulled out of him. It's just like watching, like, a you know, a big dumb animal tragically die or something. I like that you can at least see his face here because, I mean, his most famous role, he, he's 100% covered in makeup, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I actually really like Cheney here. Like, I'll agree with you that he's not doing much and he's not given a lot to do, but the fact that he does those things so well and it comes through so strongly, to me, explains you know, why you would look at this and go, oh, absolutely, let's let's get this guy doing more stuff. Especially because, like, you know, from Universal's perspective, I think they must have realized that they had an actor problem by this point. Because your big horror stars are Karloff and Lugosi, and Karloff doesn't want to work with Universal, and Lugosi, uh, Universal... He's a liability. Yeah, Universal doesn't want to work with him, Right. But on the flip side, they're also both, like, getting up there in age. They can't carry... They can't be the magnetic star of a movie, right? They, they're both now kind of stuck being, like... Like, all the Karloff movies are like, yeah, he's an ancient mad scientist, and here's his young daughter and her young boyfriend. Cheney's 35. He can still be a leading man. And what's interesting about this movie is it's a movie that figures out Like, the horror here isn't necessarily that people are being threatened by the monster, Mm -hmm. right? So he kills some innocent people, almost all of which happens off screen. Like, there's a whole sequence where, like, after they electric chair him and he breaks out, he kills, like, a bunch of cops and stuff escaping, but we don't see it. It's all just, like, reporters, like, looking off screen and being like, oh, he's doing this now! Yeah, Um, it's a little comical. But, um, so really we see him killing, like, Regis and stuff. And yes, he threatens Anne, but as you mentioned, that kind of only happens because it seems to, like, have to by formula. Yeah. And really... And this is, like, they need to fill at least, like, five more minutes. Yeah. 
for me, really, the horror in this movie is from Dan's point of view of kind of being like a swell guy who gradually gets his humanity taken away one step at a time until he finally just dies, right? There's a little bit of the horror that we see in other addiction parallels. Yes, and additionally, I think because he's able to be the leading man and the monster at the same time, that means the monster can be tragic, that means that the horror can be directed more as like an inward thing, Um, and I think it gives Universal a very unique way to solve the postcode horror dilemma, where, you know, the monster doesn't have to be some guy out for revenge, which is one way we've seen of solving it, but additionally, like, the monster can be the lead, and the horror is his loss of humanity. You know, what this movie really is, is it's a test run for the Wolfman. Yeah. Like, yes, this movie doesn't get to do enough. You know, we've talked about how, like, it's um, got a lot of padding, and it takes a long time, too, for it to get where it's going. Like, even the first bit where he kills Lawrence feels like that was, what, the halfway point in the movie? Yeah, there's almost, like, no violence Yes. in this. It's, like, a violent-free horror. Well, in, like, that first half, before we get to that point, like, we have the hints that Regis is a mad scientist and that stuff's going to happen. But it's mostly just, like, these pleasant scenes of them, like, But you need to set up out. how charming and sweet Dan Exactly. Is. But what I think it really feels like is they were kind of, you know, this movie, they're not breaking the bank. They're not really going for anything. But it's like enough of a proof of concept that Universal, I think, looking at this, was justified giving George Wagner and Lon Chaney over double this budget to go and make The Wolfman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. The other thing that I thought was kind of interesting, it's not as like big a point of this being the trial run mm-hmm. for Wolfman, but I thought it was interesting how like everyone is consistently appalled at the experiments Regis is doing. To the point where they destroy the research at the end, versus what we've seen with many of the Karloff Mad Scientist movies. Specific one in mind is The Man with Nine Lives, mm-hmm. where like they're stuck in the freezer. Um, where the research at the end is like, let's use this and let it not go to waste. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a very good point to bring up. There's a different attitude to the mad scientist here, right? Like the Columbia movies, and maybe it's because it's like the lead actor, like it's Karloff. But the Columbia movies always feel like they're trying to play it both ways, where he's sympathetic, but also the villain. So, like, his research is important, but his methods to get it are bad. So, like, he needs to be punished, but we also need to use the research at the end. It's always trying to, like, you know, have the cake and eat it, too. And, yeah, this movie is just like, no, Regis is crazy and bad. We don't have to... (laughs) I think the difference, too, is, like, Karloff's stuff in the Columbia movies, it's always like, you know, I'm searching for the cure for cancer, and it just so happens the cure is murdering people and then bringing them back to life as zombies. But, like, (laughs) cancer, it's important, you know? Like, that's sort of the Columbia movies. Whereas, like, Regis' whole thing is, like, I found a way to control men's minds and turn them into an army of, you know, atomic supermen who will conquer the world under my control as emperor of electricity. And it's like, there's no, there's no good use for that. He also has lines of, like, without giving specific 
labels to people saying like people who don't who aren't productive. Yeah. Who are a burden to society. Yeah, they're the ones he's going to turn into his electrical army. Um, to be ruled by superior intellect. And it's 1941, and Nazi Germany has declared war on many people. Yeah, they've conquered France by this point. Yeah, and there, there's just stuff going on. And I know it's not until, like, December when the States joins the war, and I know that there's a lot of, like pro-Nazi and pro-isolationist policies and groups and rhetoric going on, but it was just like, this is at will hamming it up, and he's using these throwaway lines to do so. Um, I just wanted to acknowledge that. Yeah, there's definitely an undertone, however subtle it is, that Atwell's character is kind of a eugenicist, right? It's that eugenicist rhetoric of like, these people aren't useful or worthy, and they should be ruled by the worthy, and we should find some way to, like, you know, make them useful and stuff so that they're in some way contributing. And, yeah, it definitely has those undertones, and it's it's hard to tell, you know, given the time this movie came out, how intentional they are or not, because they could very well be intentional. It was kind of taboo and against the rules to make anti-Nazi content at this time just because of, like, the Hays Code rule about, like, not um, disparaging other countries and stuff like that, um, and America not being technically at war and things. But you look at a lot of media around this time, and, you know, you especially considered, like, the kinds of people who work in Hollywood, there was a lot of, like, seeing how far we could get away with being anti-Nazi. And there were certain studios who were certainly, like, more gung-ho about it than others. Like, Warner Brothers was certainly gung-ho about it, and Universal really wasn't. So it's hard to say how intentional that was, mm-hmm. but it, it's you're totally right that it's, like, hard not to think about it when you see the movie. Yeah. Overall, I think this is a fairly good movie. Like, it's competent. Um, it's... <laughs> I love that, like, in recent episodes, competent has become, like, a mark of, like... We enjoyed this. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I think, like, it's important to acknowledge, especially as the genre does this turn towards B and Poverty Row filmmaking, that, you know, acknowledging competent filmmaking. Absolutely. Um, I think this is a bit more than competent. I guess what's kind of holding me back is the fact that it does feel a little generic to me. Maybe it's because we're going back to this monster with pathos thing, which was big in the 30s. It's also a script from 1935, right? Totally. Like they're they're bringing out this old stuff. I yeah, I would agree. I think it's good. It's just it's not great. It's good. I think it could have been better if it had committed a little bit more. You know, showing if, a bit more of the violence. Yeah, and having a bit more of the runtime actually be the man-made monster because like this is just shy of an hour long and like I I didn't sit there with a stopwatch. But how it feels watching it is the first half of the movie is nothing. Then in the midpoint, he becomes the electrical man and kills Lawrence. You know, the third quarter of the movie, after the midpoint, he's not the monster, it's him on trial. And, like, getting arrested and, like, police and attorneys and stuff doing investigations and things. And then, you know, then he there's the execution and he gets away and, like, a large part of him on the run from the cops is not seeing him. It's everyone else running around 
going, oh, he was spotted over here and over here. Mm-hmm. And so then it's like the last ten minutes, maybe less, where it's the climax and he's back and he's the monster and stuff. So it's really like, you know, it feels like you're getting maybe 15 minutes of monster action in like a movie that's an hour long. Mm-hmm. And it could have been more. And I also just want to point out that, like, despite people being like, there's too much similarities between this and Invisible Ray, or, like, I've, I read online, like, comparisons between this and The Walking Dead, mm-hmm. there's, like, you want to know the similarities? Um, with The Walking Dead, guy goes to jail. Is killed, comes back. Or goes to electric chair. But it doesn't work. It doesn't take. Yeah. So there's that. And with Invisible Ray, it's the fact that someone's glowing. Yep. That's it. I mean, you have to remember that, like, uh, Wagner rewrote the script, so we don't know how close the original would have been to Invisible Ray. Fair. But this is its own thing. I think it's much more... Much more akin to the Wolfman. Yeah, it's much more accurate to call this the Wolfman test run than to compare it to the other things. I do have one last question I want to ask you before we saddle on over to ranking. Sure. So this is Atwell and Cheney, but it was written for Lugosi and Karloff. Do you think this would have been better or as good? Like, how do you think this movie would have been different with those two guys in the roles? You've said in the past, and it's something I agree with, that Lugosi's really good in roles where he's seeking revenge. Mm -hmm. I think he... Like, there's parts of Regis being like, revenge on the scientific community, but, like, it's so vague that I don't think it would have been here, and I don't think Lugosi would have been able to ham it up in as successful a way as Atwell does here. Yeah. And with Karloff, I don't think he would have agreed to do it because of how much of the movie he's a shambling monster and his aversion to being put in those Rolls again. Yeah, it's it's way too close to the Frankenstein monster. I also think, honestly, that if there's one thing that Lon Chaney Jr. has over Karloff when it comes to playing a monster, it's that Lon Chaney Jr. is big. Karloff is big. They put Karloff in platform shoes to be the Frankenstein monster, and they bulk his shoulders out with, um, you know, shoulder padding. Like, he's big when he's the Frankenstein monster, but, like, you know, when he's playing these mad scientists over at Columbia, he's, he's you know, looks pretty... He's looking smaller and smaller as he ages, right? Of course. Fair. And Cheney, when he's just regular Cheney, is, like, a foot taller than everyone else in the cast. Yeah, I would agree. So where would you rank this? I think we might have some disagreement here just because it, it sounds like I enjoyed this more than you. Uh, so my, my floor is number 47, below Supernatural, above the Vampire Bat. That's my floor. Uh, and then my ceiling would be number 41, below the Dark Eyes of London, above the Invisible Man Returns. That's kind of where I'm looking. Okay. I had a very narrow range to the point where I was like, this is just where I feel, like, this particular spot is where I feel it should go. Okay. And that's above Spanish Dracula and below Before I Hang at 53. Below Before I Hang. Okay. So I would I would really be interested in hearing why you thought Before I Hang was better, just because I remember being very frustrated with Before I Hang. <laughs> So, when I started trying to rank this film, I found myself feeling 
frustrated with how um, bloodless mm -hmm. it is. Mm -hmm. um, it's very tame. Yeah. We don't, we see hardly any deaths. And there are some points where, like, you know, he accidentally, Dan accidentally electrocutes some fish when he's first getting, like, electrical powers. And, like, we cut away. So there's, like, a feeling of, like, um, tension rising or um, delayed gratification in a way for the audience. But then you don't actually satisfy me. Yeah, they do suspense, I think, in this movie pretty well. But there's never, like, a payoff to it. Yeah. Um, even Regis, he gets electrocuted, but, like, it's not Dan shaking him or throwing him off a windmill or doing anything. It's electrocution through a doorknob, and when we cut to the other side of the door with Regis, he's just, like, there's no visual effects of, like, electricity coming out. He's just, like, the and moment, then, like, falls over. Yeah, the moment of death for a lot of characters is we cut away from it, right? Like, we cut to a reaction shot the moment they die and then come back, and it's really unsatisfying. Yeah, so that is probably my main problem with the Mad Maid monster. So I looked down at Spanish Dracula because I remember us feeling a similar kind of frustration of, like, you're going through the steps, but, like, give me the horror. Mm -hmm. um, and just not having that sense of satisfaction. Before I Hang, um, which for, just to remind people, because there's so many of these Karloff movies, it's a Karloff movie, he's a mad scientist, he goes to be hanged, um, he gets brought back, and then he, like, brings the attorney, the the jury people, and whatever, no, into this house. That was that was Man Who, Man They Could Not Hang. Oh, what was Before I Hang? Before I Hang is the one where uh, he is trying to create, like, eternal youth. And he accidentally, like, killed a patient doing the experiment, so they've sentenced him to be hanged. But then he works with the prison doctor and figures out how to do it. So they, uh, like, go to hang him, and he, like, lives or whatever. Uh, but, like, then the doctor, he, he, like, has, like, the murderous rage is, like, the weird... Because it's, it's, like, the, the spinal fluid thing. And, like, he has murderous rage because uh, they used, like, a murderer in the prison to give him the donation right, right. but it gives him but he was like super old at the start of the movie and it's like eternal youth and he's now like young and he's trying to convince all his rich old friends to do it and they won't right. do it so he murders each one of them and it's all strangling it's all him taking like uh uh like a stocking or like some piece of like silk or yeah it's a scarf and strangling them that's before i hang okay i would still say that that's more gory isn't the right word but it gives us more of the violence even when he's killing um, the professor played by Van Helsing. Yes. <laughs> Edward Van Sloan. Edward Van Sloan. Um, yeah, I don't know. It just has a bit more to it. The bat. I remember being really spooked when, like, the dude in the mask is coming towards the chick. Mm -hmm. um, Dora or something like that? Nora? Whatever. Um, it just has, like, moments of, like, Wah! whereas this movie, I didn't have that. So that's kind of why I, I went so low. Okay. Um, I do like that you completely, like, got two Karloff Mad Scientist movies mixed up because that totally proves, like, my <laughs> point about, like, how many of them there are and how similar they all are. Yeah. They all have the same damn title and, like, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't like Before I Hang because I felt like 
they didn't explain why he was murderous well enough, and, like, nothing seemed to be making sense, and I didn't feel like the pacing was good in it. I think you are right that the scenes of menace uh, and violence that exist in it are more intense than what's in this movie, despite the fact that, like, I was disappointed with the menace in that movie anyways, because it's just like, you strangled them with a scarf? What? Anyways. I mean, it is possible. Sure, it's just like, it's just like a very, like, bloodless way of doing things, right? Um, very code safe. Yeah. Um, but I think, I think you're right. I think that's a good point. So I would be, I would be fine with putting this where you wanted to put it, putting it at number 53 below before I hang, but above Spanish Dracula. Okay. Um, then let's do it if you're good with that. Yeah. So that means that entering the list at number 53, Man-Made Monster from 1941, directed by George Wagner. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to episodes that we've discussed today, um, and you can also check out things that might be on our miscellaneous list, like Horror Island, which was a double feature with Man-Made Monster when it was released back in 1941. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can submit through our appeals box on Tumblr, or you can also email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. If you can leave us a rating or a review on whatever podcasting service you use to listen to the show, that would be greatly appreciated. We'd also really like it if you could just share the show through word of mouth, either in real life or through whatever social media feeds you still use in this hellscape of a year of 2018. Another way you can really help us out is by heading over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. We've been doing special things all month in the lead-up to today, Halloween. Woo! That includes special music by yours truly. Ben's been doing some great short fiction. And uh, all of that is up on Patreon for patrons of any level. You can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. At higher levels, like $5 a month, you get access to bonus audio cut from previous episodes of the show, or at $10 a month, access to monthly horror short fiction. As Sarah just mentioned, there's her spooky Halloween music that's gone up all throughout the month that's available to patrons of any level, and it's not going anywhere. None of the Patreon content does. Uh, I know that's something that some Patreons do, but uh, it's not something we do. So you can sign up and get anything from any past months as long as you're at the correct donor level. So that's patreon.com slash podcast. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Next at, week. When it's like, it's not like actual Halloween, but for us, Halloween is a year-long gig. So what are we watching next Halloween? <laughs> <laughs> what are we watching next week? Next week, Sarah, we are going back in time. More than we, we normally always do, do that, though. Normal, more than we normally do, because uh, we're heading back to 1934 from the early days of Mexican horror. It's Dos Monjes, directed by Juan Bastillo Oro, who was one of the co-writers of El Fantasma del Convento. Do you know what that means? Two monks. Okay. Dos Monjes. <laughs> cool. Um, well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.